Good evening. Good evening. Wonderful to be here again tonight, and thank you for joining us on such a, a wild night. And um, we do look forward to this evening, I hope, and the will of God as we see what the Lord has for us. It's been wonderful to be with you the last five weeks. Um, it's hard to believe that's it over for this session anyway, and we'll see what happens after Christmas um, as the Lord leads us. But uh, it's been really good to journey with you in this study of looking at revival now, what revival might look like in 2021, um, what revival might look like right at this moment of time. And we've looked at how we need a, a new Jesus movement. We've looked at how we need a new prayer movement. We need a new holy, holiness movement. We need a new freedom movement. And tonight I want us to look at how we need a new word and spirit movement. Now, I'm sorry for the folk who've just been wanting to hear the one on the unity movement, but I apologize for that. It will probably come after Christmas, but um, I'm not ready for it yet. And, and I have started preparing, but I'm not ready for it yet. There's still a few things I have to sort out in my own head and heart. But um, tonight, this is what God led me to definitely this evening. And maybe we were going to spend a week on the Word on its own or the Spirit on its own, but I really felt the Lord saying, no, we need a new Word and Spirit movement. So we're turning to two portions of Scripture to read from, first of all. First of all, Second Corinthians and chapter 3, and then Second Timothy chapter 4. So if you want to get those two portions, Second Corinthians 3 and Second Timothy chapter 4. So 2 Corinthians 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, will statement, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. You may want to put a marker in there as you turn to Second Timothy 4. We will go back to 2 Corinthians 3 in a moment or two. 2 Timothy 4, then verse 1. I charge you therefore before God. That's a sobering statement there, a charge from the apostle. Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful. In all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Amen. Amen. It was in 1947 that a prophecy was made by 
Smith Wigglesworth. I don't know whether you're too familiar with him or not, but he was an outstanding Pentecostal figure last century. And uh, he was an uneducated Yorkshireman, a plumber, who introduced thousands of people all over the world to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in 1947, a week before his death, he predicted two developments in the universal church. He said that, first of all, there would be a restoration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that. And secondly, he said, there would be a revived emphasis on the Word of God. I'm not sure we've seen that in our modern times just yet. But then he went on to to elaborate, and these are his words, I quote, When these two moves of the Spirit combine, that is, the restoration of the gifts of the Spirit and revived emphasis on the Word of God, When these two moves of the Spirit combine, we shall see the greatest move of the the church of Jesus Christ has ever seen. Wow, what a statement. We shall see the greatest move that the church of Jesus Christ has ever seen. Now, I suppose in recent times, we could define these two elements of the church, that is, those who have re-emphasized and discovered again the gifts of the Spirit and those who seek to emphasize the Word of God as the perhaps the evangelical and the charismatic streams within Christendom. It may be a bit simplistic, but generally speaking, those are the camps. Evangelical, uh, very much the tenets of the Reformation, importance and centrality of the infallibility and authority of the Scriptures. And then the charismatic movement who have claimed to rediscover the gifts of the Spirit and the move of the Spirit. And often both of these streams have been opposed to each other in certain ways. Although I think today there's more overlap in them than there has ever been. And yet, still, there are some parts of evangelicalism where I would say they have hardened further than they've ever been before. And I would also suggest that that's due to a lack of openness to the influence of the Holy Spirit. But equally so, The charismatic movement in places has been significantly weakened due to a lack of sound biblical teaching. Now, I've touched on this before in our series, that we live in an increasingly polarized world. Isn't that the case? In politics, uh, whether you're left or right, liberal or conservative. But it's also the same in the church, I believe, that there's a great gulf between these two streams in Christianity, though there's overlap a lot, there there seems to be a hardening influence in evangelicalism and a weakening within the charismatic movement. But I believe Smith's Wiggleworth's prophecy was right, that God's desire is that the Word and the Spirit come together as one in His church, as was His original intention and design. An older Baptist pastor said to me very recently, Blessed are the balanced. That's not a beatitude that you'll find in Scripture. I'm not even sure I agree with it, but many Christians believe that it is a great virtue to be balanced, whatever that means. And for many, the concept is that, well, somewhere you're in the middle. You're a moderate. But, you know, I've been helping my, uh, my 15-year-old son with his GCSE physics revision of late um, and uh, the physics of the seesaw. Do you know what the physics of the seesaw is? Well, there's a pivot at the middle point called a fulcrum, but balance is achieved by weight at either extreme. Do you understand? 
You don't put the wave in the middle where the fulcrum is. You put the wave at either extreme. And I believe that balance will come in a word and spirit movement combined, which is what we need as a new movement of God when we go extreme into the Word of God, but we also go extreme into the Spirit. It's not about a 50-50 meaning halfway. Because what you get then is neither one nor the other. But we go all out, 100% Word, 100% Spirit, and that to me is New Testament, actually Apostles' Christianity. We need both. It's not either or, but both and. And uh, David Pawson once said, theology without experience is barren, but experience without theology is dangerous. And so we need two things I'm going to propose to you tonight. First of all, the word with the Spirit, not the word without the Spirit. We need the word with the Spirit, not the word without the Spirit. And secondly, we need the Spirit with the Word, not the Spirit without the Word. So first of all, let's look at the Word with the Spirit, not the Word without the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, where we read from uh, verse 2, tells us that Paul, though he was a well-educated man, he put no confidence in the flesh. And he reacts to those who say, all you need is to obey the laws of God. And there was within the church, um, the early church very often, false teachers who were called Judaizers who would come and tell the Christians, we believe in Jesus, we believe he died and rose again, and we believe the gospel is important, but you must add to your gospel Judaism. You must keep the, the laws of Moses, the, the, the rules and the rites and the rituals and the cleanliness laws, laws and so forth, and the men need to be circumcised, etc., and Paul is saying, no, that is not the case. It is the Spirit of God. We are not ministers of the letter, the law, in other words. The law kills, but it's the Spirit that brings life. Now, some people think that we need a back to the Bible movement. And I think I said to you in a previous week that effectively, that's what the Pharisees were. Sadduceeism had come into vogue and it was a liberalism that didn't believe in spirit and uh, literal things like angels and demons and the afterlife. And so the Pharisees were a back to the Bible movement. Of course, the Bible was the laws of Moses. And they were stringently calling the Jews back to faithfulness, fidelity with their Bible. But the problem was it was the letter that kills. The spirit was not in it bringing life. And that is testified by the fact that when their own Messiah turned up, that they were waiting for for thousands of years, they didn't recognize him. In other words, they knew the Bible back to front, but when God showed up in human flesh, they didn't recognize him. And that is the great danger of fundamentalism. That you know the Word of God, but you don't know the God of the Word. For many of us, too, we have, dare I say it, and I know this is controversial, we have immortalized our own interpretation of Scripture. Now, let me say clearly, I believe in the total inspiration of the original Scriptures, and I believe in the authority of the Word of God as central, but I do not believe in the authority and infallibility of my interpretation of the Word of God. And many of us have immortalized and sanctified, as it were, 
our interpretation. And very often we have to be aware of the fact, just like the Pharisees, that our interpretation can restrict what God wants to do. And Jesus actually said that, didn't he, in the context of the Pharisees in Mark 7, 13. He said, you make the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. You can actually, with your religious restrictions, limit limit the power of the word of God. It was the Pilgrim Fathers who sailed the United States who stated that we can believe that the Lord has yet more light to bring forth from his word. I'm sure there's nobody here that has the audacity to suggest that you know it all. That you've got the Bible completely sorted in every area and there's nothing more to learn. And therefore we have to say in a historic perspective that that is the same for the church. I believe there's still things for the church to discover from the scriptures. We have to be careful of those claiming new revelation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the revelation we already have, but I'm talking about the light from it we still to grapple with. Things that still have to be discovered. And so the pilgrim fathers, I believe, were right. The Lord has yet more light to bring forth from his word. Catholic people are often accused of worshipping the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary. But Protestants equally could be guilty of worshipping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that is our triune God that we worship. And the danger is we can be guilty of Bibleolatry, which is the worship of a book. And don't misunderstand me. I believe in the Word of God that was made flesh, and I believe that um, the Scriptures are, are, are Jesus in print. But we are not to worship this book as a deity. And very often there are legalistic Bible ministries, and they bring death. They are devoid of the Spirit. Indeed, very often they're against the work of the Spirit. They emphasize rules, regulations, restrictions. And let me tell you that even if the laws that you're going by, the ethic, are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments never brought life to anybody. They only brought death because that's what they were intended to do so that we might seek a Savior by grace through faith. And it's only the grace of the Spirit of God that can bring life to us. That's why Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 3 that it's the Spirit of the living God who has made us tablets not of stone, but tablets of the flesh, that is, of the heart. We have been made epistles by the power of the grace of the Spirit, not the law, not the letter. And that is the new covenant. And I don't have time to go into that tonight, but if you were to read... Jeremiah 31, verse 33 to 34, Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20. You read about the new covenant in Messiah that is a covenant in the Spirit, and it is cut on the tablet of our hearts. And Ezekiel says that what God would come to do in this New Testament age is take away our hearts of stone and put hearts of flesh in us so that we can actually keep God's law through the law of love not through legalistic rules and regulations. Now, often our interpretation of Scripture and our legalism has been a hindrance to revival. Let me illustrate this. Some people have the attitude, Bible believers, that if a thing is not in the Bible, I don't accept it. 
Now, I have a problem with that. Because not everything we do in church is in the Bible. Not everything that has happened in historic revivals is in the Bible. And by the way, because something is not in the Bible does not make it unbiblical. There's a difference. Do you understand? It may not be mentioned in the Bible, but as long as it does not transgress the principles of the Bible, we ought to be comfortable with it. In fact, there is a unique element to every revival that has ever happened in the history of the church that you may not find specifically in the Scriptures, but they do not go against what the Scripture teaches. You with me? We must weigh everything by the Word of God, with the inspiration and the authority of the Word, yes. Now, I'm no expert on revival, but I never knew of a revival that rose out of an environment that was closed to the power of the Holy Spirit. Never. And I would go as far to say I've never heard of revival coming out of the cessationist movement. In other words, people who don't believe that God can do what he used to do. And I was part of that movement. In fact, what I see in historic revivals is the explicit teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will not fall out with anybody over terminology. And I tend to agree with Billy Graham when he said, I don't care what you call it, just get it. And there is an experience of an endowment of power from on high, whether you call it fullness of the Spirit, sealing of the Spirit, uh, baptism of the Spirit, whatever. But I do believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I'll tell you, that was the main reason that Duncan Campbell was opposed by the established church in the Hebridean revival. As well as having brown shoes, which was one thing they didn't like about him, which is very interesting. How could, how could God send a man with brown shoes? That was actually said. But he preached the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And boy, do we need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not long after the significant Holy Spirit revivals of the 1900s, I'm talking about, you know, Wales and so on, 1904, 1905, revival broke out in a German city by the name, the name of Kassel, K-A-S-S-E-L. But it died very quickly, mainly because of the opposition of German evangelical church leaders. Theologians critically analyzed the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit and the unusual manifestations of these in revival, and they found them wanting. And incidentally, Dr. A.T. Schofield, not of the Schofield Bible now, but he was a, a, a missionary to India and saw revival in India. He said this, As well expect a hurricane, an earthquake, or a flood to leave nothing abnormal in its course as to expect a true revival that is not accompanied by events quite out of our ordinary experience. But getting back to Germany, in 1909, 56 conservative evangelical German church leaders issued a joint statement, it was called the Berlin Declaration, in which they condemned the Pentecostal movement. And this is what they said. This so-called Pentecostal movement is not from above but from below. Many of the phenomena they can also be found in spiritism. Demons are at work here, who led by Satan's cunning mix truth and lies in order to entice the children of God. The personal faith and dedication of some leading brothers and sisters cannot deceive us 
not even the healings, tongues, prophecies, etc. The movement brings forth powerful spiritual and physical manifestations like falling, face twitching, trembling and shaking, screaming ugly and loud laughing. Such phenomena are not worked by God. And one commentator says, with these and many more references, the German church refused her only weapon against the spirit of Antichrist, the weapon of the anointing. And five years later, Germany plunged herself and much of the rest of the world into a fiery cauldron of World War I. A conflict that consumed the cream of an entire generation of European manhood. And the spiritual vacuum created by Germany's rejection of the spirit intensified the economic and social devastation that followed World War I and then created an opportunity for the spirit of Antichrist to fill the gap with the rise to power of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. And that evil spirit engulfed the globe in horror and unbelievable brutality of World War II. About 55 million people around the world died. Now the spirit of Antichrist is at work in our land. And the church is impotent to halt its advance. I'm sorry, but we are utterly powerless. And one of the reasons is we do not exercise the power that is from on high. We will exercise political power. We will exercise legal power. We will exercise financial power. We will exercise denominational power. But we need to exercise the power of God. We need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit over our land. We need the word with the Spirit, not the word without the Spirit. If revival could come just through the preaching of the Bible, we would have a perennial revival here in Ulster. But we're far from it. But we need a word on Spirit movement. And just as the word with must be with the Spirit, not the Word without the Spirit. We must have the Spirit with the Word and not the Spirit without the Word. And I believe, like Amos' day, we are living in a time where there's a famine in the land of the Word of the Lord. There are generations of leaders within the church who are rising without a solid grounding in the Scriptures. And I'm sure some of you might think who are listening to these um, messages that I'm being very overcritical of the church. I really, I'm, I don't think I am. But, but there is, I have encountered a biblical illiteracy that is staggering within the church today. I remember going to a, a church weekend. I was teaching at it. And uh, there was a table quiz to break the ice on, on the Friday evening. And of course, there were rounds on absolutely everything. Pop quiz film, quiz, sport, all, all you can imagine at all. And then we came to the Bible quiz. And I'm not just being, honestly, it was abysmal. Now I know that spirituality cannot be equated by much of the Bible, you know. But listen, if you read some of the Bible, you're going to know some of it. You know what I mean? And one of the problems is, Christians are not reading their Bibles. I don't, I'm not saying you need to read the Bible in a year or anything like that. Some of you maybe couldn't do that. I think most people could if they tried. But I'm not saying you need to do that. 
But you need to be feeding on the Word of God. And there is a biblical illiteracy that means today that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. We were warned, weren't we, by Paul, that there would come a time, and I think we're in it, when people will not endure sound teaching. 2 Timothy 4, we read it together. Let me read it to you from Peterson's The Message. I really love this rendering of it. 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 5 in The Message. You're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages, but you Keep your eye on what you're doing. Accept the hard times along with the good. Keep the message alive. Do a third job as God's servant. Isn't that so true? People have no stomach for solid teaching. And they're filling up on junk food. Catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They've turned their back on truth. And we see that right across the board in the church. And yes, the law without the Spirit brings death. That is true. And Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians 2.4. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration in the Spirit with power. But we need Spirit-anointed preaching of the Word of God. It's not the this, this Spirit without the Word. It must be the Spirit and the Word. The Spirit with the Word. Even Calvin asserted that the Holy Spirit must come upon the Word of God for it to be effective. You see, there's some who believe that all you need to do is take the Bible and preach it, and the Holy Spirit is contained within the Word, and that's all you need to do. But even some of the Reformers were aware that that is tantamount to you controlling the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is contained in the Word and all you have to do is preach the Word, you just preach the Word everywhere and you're in control of what the Holy Spirit does. But the fact of the matter is, for the Word to be living, the Holy Spirit has to take it and make it effective. And that's what Paul said, wasn't it, in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. God had to bring the life through the power of the Spirit. So exegesis is no substitute for unction. Sound doctrine never, ever guarantees spiritual power. And yet without the Word of God, we are in danger, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.14, of being tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. The word with the Spirit, not the word without the Spirit, and the Spirit with the word, not the Spirit without the word. And I'm not saying, listen, there's a lot of work, and I think consideration of what we need to say is authentic and what is tradition. I'm not saying that that, that everybody should preach the same. I'm not even saying that it should all be expository preaching, and I believe that's one form of preaching, but I don't believe it's the only form of preaching. 
And I don't believe really in sermonizing either. So there's work to be done. But what we're talking about is we need to be those. I mean, preaching was very different in the New Testament. It was more rabbinical rather than what we do as orators standing up in front of a congregation. It was more sitting down and answering questions. Maybe we need to get back to that. Where the congregation is less passive. So the jury's out on a lot of our traditions. But the word of God must be our authority. David Pawson was, he says, was asked frequently if he would minister after he had spoken, to which he usually replied, I will be ministering while I speak. It's the idea that we do a ministry after we pray for folk, and I do that stuff, and I believe in it. But we're ministering through the Word. Because the Spirit comes on the Word, where we're in the Spirit, preaching the Word. And we've got to get back our faith in the power of the living Word of God preached in the power of the unction of the Spirit. It's interesting that water in Scripture is both a figure that represents the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And it's fitting because they ought to be united together. As Wigglesworth said, we we need to see, and he believes we're going to see, and I believe it too, a new word and spirit movement. And when those two come together, and let's figure it out, it's not rocket science, is it? Is it really? That we just have gatherings where we bring the word and the spirit together, not 50-50, but 100%, 100% in both. And we see what God does. The water of the Spirit and the water of the Word. Most major civilizations throughout history began around river basins. You know that, don't you? And Belfast here, this city, my home city, is an example of that. The town built up around a water basin. And in the natural, wherever rivers are, life blossoms, commerce expands, and agriculture grows. And this is what happens when we build with the water of the Word and the water of the Spirit, we will see community change and transformation. It was Andrew Murray, out of his books on prayer and on holiness and communion with God, I highly recommend him to you. I quoted him the week that we were talking about um, prayer and how the man who sets the church to pray, pray will do the most for world evangelization. But he also said, a revived church is the only hope for a dying nation. Wow. And a revived church is only possible when the Word and the Spirit come together. Let's pray. Now let's take a moment or two before we sing or do anything else. And I alluded to you that I came from a background and I taught as a pastor the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. In other words, that these gifts died with the apostles and God could use them if he wanted to, but generally he doesn't today. That's what I taught. Of course, I no longer believe that. Both 
because of revelation through the scriptures and experience of my own. But I've had to do an awful lot of repenting of what I believed, what I taught, what I imparted to others, and they ended up believing. I don't know whether you need to repent of that. You probably don't. But maybe you need to repent of how you viewed other Christians, the ones who are all word, or the ones who are all spirit, or whatever they might be. And I haven't stopped repenting, by the way. I find myself doing it regularly over prejudices, hypocrisy, hardness of heart that I find within myself. So maybe you need to repent of one or the other. Or maybe you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that you take it by faith, like you take everything in the Christian life. Everything in the Christian life is offered by the grace of God. It's a free gift of God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. But it must be taken by faith. And I don't believe you're passive sitting around waiting on it happening. I believe by faith you take God at his word. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, another version says, bad and all as you are, you know how to give good gifts give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? And he goes on to say, if you're, one of you is a father, your child asks for bread, would you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, would you give him a serpent? In other words, and some of you have been inoculated against the Holy Spirit by fear, Jesus is saying you have nothing to be afraid of. If you come to heavenly Father and ask for the Holy Spirit, you have nothing to fear. He's not going to give you a stone. If you need bread and sustenance, he's not going to give you something to break your teeth on. If you're looking for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give you a scorpion to sting you or a snake to bite you. He's not going to give you a demon. If you're coming to Jesus, coming to the Father, he's not going to give you a demon. Now, I'm not saying people don't have false experiences. They do. And there are counterfeits that do go on. But we're so afraid of the false fire that we go without fire. And listen, the devil only counterfeits something that's true. So let's stop asking the question constantly, where's the counterfeit, and start looking for the true. Where's the true? And there's a lot of ministries around this province and pulpits to be able to tell you all it's counterfeit, but they're not offering the true fire of God. And so we come in repentance and we come in faith and we say, upon your promise, Lord, I asked you to fill me, baptize me with the power of the Holy Spirit like the first apostles were. And you take it by faith. That means... You believe you receive, you, have, you receive the things that you've asked for because it's according to his will. You just believe he's done it. Well, he, we're so obsessed with our feelings. Now, when I tell you God can give feelings, it can turn your world upside down. But we're not looking for the feelings. We're looking in faith. You leave the feelings to God and you believe him by faith and let him testify your filling and baptism of the Spirit however he sees fit. And one of the most common evidences was tongues. Not necessarily the only one, perhaps. I don't know whether you've ever received this, but listen, it's not a once-for-all thing anyway. It's a, Ephesians 5 tells us, 18, it's a continually be, being filled, a continual being filled by the Spirit day by day. 
And so it might have happened to you 50 years ago or five weeks ago, but you need to continue to maintain that Spirit's fullness in your life. So why don't you come to the Lord right now, just in these moments before we sing. And if you need to do business with God upon this truth of the Word of God, I'll tell you, we need our churches filled with Spirit-baptized, Spirit-filled Christians again. Even the churches that aspire or ascribe to be charismatic, Pentecostal, you know, a lot of them are filled with, I'm not saying this in a critical way, but a lot of them are filled with people who don't believe this. And they've come from other churches because they like the music there or they don't like to wear suits to go into church or something like that. And they feel more free and easy. And people are getting into leadership in these churches. And I'm not saying, because I'm not interested in denominations anyway, I'm just telling you this, that even in the churches that say we believe this, a lot of them don't, and a lot of them are not allowing freedom for the Holy Spirit to move. We don't know what it is to allow God to move anymore. We don't know what it is to wait on God and give God space and give God time. Because we're in control. Not the Holy Spirit. Evan Roberts in the 1904-1905 revival would come in and he wouldn't say a thing. I couldn't do this. He, he, he would just sit. And they would all sit around in a circle and they would say nothing until the Spirit moved. The old Quakers did the same. And I'm not saying they got everything right. But who has everything right? But they got that right. He didn't move until God moved. We would panic. We would panic. I get awkward when there's silences. So we have to do something. Listen, we don't need to do any more. The last thing we need is to do more. The last thing we need is a new program. Huh? We need God to do something. Would you agree? And when God does something, You pray now to the Lord, whatever you need, fresh filling, fresh anointing. Who doesn't, who here doesn't need something from the Spirit of God? I know I do. Just pray to the Lord now, whatever your need is. Fall afresh on us, Lord. We need times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Oh, that you would pour water on those that are thirsty. Floods upon the dry ground. Blessed Lord Jesus, you said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And you're not looking for people to strive and strain and have breakdowns and heart attacks pursuing this. You're just looking for people to take you at your word and believe that this is for them and to step out in faith. I'm going to tell you a story here that might help you. There's a guy in LM Ministries called David Cross. He now heads up their work. And he was posted in Hong Kong and there are two Chinese Christians that invited him to come and receive the Holy Spirit in their house. That's just what they said. And when he went into their house, 
you know the way, well, I like oranges, but the Chinese often like oranges and eat oranges. And they had oranges out here on the table for his refreshment. And then had a, a face cloth, a damp face cloth, whatever that was for, for his head. And they just instructed him to take God at his word and receive. And he just prayed to God and received. And he said nothing that he was aware of having. And he went home on the bus to his apartment. And when he was on the bus, he said he was sitting beside this, this other Hong Kong resident. And he had this incredible urge to witness for Jesus to this person. He says he'd never felt that before. He had an incredible urge to witness to them. You know what, you know what Acts chapter 1 says? When the Spirit comes upon you, you shall be witnesses to me. That's, we could argue about what the signs of the Spirit's baptism are, but that's what Acts 1 says, you will be witnesses to me. Now, he, he confessed he didn't witness the person. He's too scared. But he says the first sign that he had that he had received that baptism, that filling, was that urge to share his faith with someone. So even that was a sign. So we're not looking... You might have a, 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 a Paul, the apostle experience, or you might have a very quiet, still, small voice experience. It doesn't matter. All that matters is you have the witness. And you know God wants you to know, let me tell you, just as he wants you to know that you're born again, he wants you to know that you're spirit-filled. So spirit of the living God, we say, fall afresh on us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Break us. Melt us. Mold us. Fill us. Fill your church, Lord. Fill broken, empty vessels cleansed by your blood, Lord. Lord Jesus, we are bankrupt. We are completely at a loss. We don't know what to do to make a difference. And our eyes are toward you. And unless you move, we're finished. Unless you move, Christianity is done for in Ireland. Unless you move, and we can do what we can do, and we can see the sevens and the eights, one for Christ, and we don't despise the day of small things. We thank you for one soul born again. But Lord, there are millions lost. And I don't really care as I should. And I need you, Lord. I need a baptism of your love. I need a baptism of your grace. I need a baptism of your power. We need you, Lord, like never before. Come, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. Amen.